This is the World in Brief from The Economist. Our top stories. A federal judge in Florida said he would probably unseal part of the affidavit detailing the FBI's justification for searching Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump's estate. He gave the agency a week to decide which parts to redact. The FBI argued that releasing the affidavit would undermine its investigation into whether the former president mishandled classified documents by dissuading witnesses from cooperating. Russia warned of a man-made disaster at Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, which it captured in March and threatened to shut it down if shelling continued. That would risk, quote, a radiation disaster at the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, said Energoatom, a Ukrainian nuclear company. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, likened it to suicide. On Thursday, Russia's foreign ministry rejected international calls to demilitarize the surrounding area. The office of Indonesia's president said that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are to attend a summit of the G20 in Bali in November. The Wall Street Journal had reported that Joe Biden might meet China's president in Southeast Asia at about the same time, though it is hard to picture Mr. Biden going anywhere near his Russian counterpart. Mr. Xi has not left China since the earliest days of the pandemic. Xiao Zhenhua, a Chinese-Canadian billionaire financier, was sentenced to 13 years in prison by a Chinese court on charges of bribing officials to evade financial scrutiny as well as illegally obtaining public deposits and breaching trust. His company, believed to have links to high-ranking politicians, was fined a record sum of 55 billion yuan equivalent to $8.1 billion. Mr. Xiao, seized from a Hong Kong hotel room in 2017, was tried behind closed doors in July. The man accused of stabbing Salman Rushdie, a decorated novelist, pled not guilty to second-degree attempted murder. Hadi Mater was detained without bail at a court hearing in Chautauqua in upstate New York. Sir Salman, who has long been an assassination target for certain Muslims who believe his work to be blasphemous, was attacked before giving a lecture last week. Having sprung 360% this month, the share price of Bed Bath & Beyond, a home supply chain, went spinning down the plug hole on Thursday, shedding 45% of its value in after-hours trading. Its stonking ascent had been propelled by Reddit Wall Street Bets the message board that wreaked joyful havoc with meme stocks like GameStop and AMC in early 2021. The lone investor who started the run on BBBY still holds the largest stake in GameStop. The longtime chief financial officer of Donald Trump's real estate business, Alan Weisselberg, pled guilty to 15 tax-related felony charges filed by New York's attorney general. He agreed to testify if called at a separate trial against the Trump Organization. The plea deal means that he could serve five months in prison, rather than up to 15 years. Prosecutors allege that Mr. Weisselberg evaded paying tax on perks, such as a rent-free apartment and school tuition for his grandchildren. And, fact of the day, 51%. Visa's net margin in 2021 making it one of the most profitable companies in the world. 
And now here's a deeper look at the day ahead. South Korea and Japan court disaster. Yun Suk-yeol has historic ambitions for his country's relationship with its neighbor, Japan. On August 17th, South Korea's president said that the two countries' enmity, stemming from Japan's colonial rule over Korea from 1910 to 1945, could be swept aside amicably and promptly. His enthusiasm is understandable. A bit of bonhomie could make both countries richer and more secure, especially in the face of rising tensions in the region. His optimism makes less sense. The path to rapprochement is long and treacherous, and the journey could end almost before it has begun. In 2018, South Korea's courts approved the seizure of assets from certain Japanese companies, on the basis that Koreans had been forced to toil on their behalf during the Second World War. The liquidated assets would be given to the victims. The companies refused to pay, but the court's final decision may come as early as Friday. Forcing the firms to pay up will enrage Japan and will probably put pay to Mr. Yoon's aspirations. Russian-Israeli Relations in the Dock Lawyers for the Jewish Agency for Israel, an international organization which acts on behalf of the Israeli government, will appear in Russian court on Friday. The Kremlin wants to disband its presence in the country. Russia accuses the JA, which helps Jews move to Israel, of illegally collecting the personal information of Russian citizens. The threat seems to be a warning to Israel not to change its stance on the war in Ukraine. Israel has so far remained neutral, partly due to its own large Russian-speaking population. But the country's prime minister, Yair Lapid, condemned Russia's invasion before he took office. The scale of emigration since the start of the war suggests that many Jews agree with Mr. Lapid. The JA reckons that around 20,500 Russian Jews have moved to Israel since March, over 12% of Russia's estimated Jewish population. The Kremlin may succeed in shutting down the JA, but that will not convince other Jews to stay in Russia. A deadly toll for aid workers. Wherever there is conflict, there are people who run to help. Being an aid worker in unstable or violent regions always carries risks, but 2021 was the deadliest year in nearly a decade for humanitarian staff. According to data from Humanitarian Outcomes, a consultancy in London, 141 were killed. On Friday, the UN will mark World Humanitarian Day with a campaign to raise awareness about the rising toll on aid workers. Despite there being fewer violent incidents in 2021, compared with the previous two years, the 268 reported attacks, mostly shootings and airstrikes, resulted in more deaths and 117 people were kidnapped. South Sudan remains the most dangerous place in the world for aid workers. Afghanistan comes second, despite a dip in overall violence since the Taliban returned to power. With war now raging in Ukraine, this year could be even worse for humanitarians.
Mike Pence's Brainstorming The Iowa State Fair is a rite of passage for presidential aspirants. In campaign years, candidates and the hacks covering them flock to Des Moines to consume calorific inventions served on sticks and glad-handle voters ahead of the country's first nominating contest. The next presidential election is not until 2024, yet on Friday, Mike Pence, Donald Trump's former vice president, will make an appearance in Des Moines. He comes to Iowa straight from New Hampshire, another early voting state. There, he told attendees at an event that Republicans should stop attacking the FBI over its raid of his former boss's estate, and that he would consider testifying before congressional investors probing the Capitol riot on January 6, 2021. Mr. Pence appears to have completely fallen out with Mr. Trump. His itinerary suggests he may well covet the presidency for himself. Does presidential campaign season now start before the midterms have even finished? Stasi Assassins, Synths, and a Suitcase Cleo is intense and brutal from the off. Set after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the series, released on Netflix on Friday, follows Cleo Straub, a fictional former Stasi assassin. Staub embarks on a mission to settle scores, deploying disguises, dark humor, and outlandish fashion choices that will remind many viewers of the BBC's Killing Eve. Feminist revenge dramas are in vogue. They can seem repetitive, but Cleo attempts to differentiate itself with a historical twist. The show explores the contrasts between East and West Germany in the post-Soviet era, and is infused with real events and people, such as Eric Milka, the Stasi chief. There is also a suitcase full of clues for the spy drama addicts. It is a novel way into a subgenre that every streaming company wants a slice of, and Netflix could do with a boost. It lost nearly one million subscribers in the three months to July, the biggest drop in the company's history. Daily Quiz Our baristas will serve you a new question each day this week. On Friday, your challenge is to give us all five answers and, as important, tell us the connecting theme. Email your responses and include mention of your home city and country by 1700 BST on Friday to quizespresso at economist.com. We'll pick randomly from those with the right answers and crown one winner per continent on Saturday. Friday. What is the currency of Armenia? Thursday. Under the imperial system of measures, what unit was equal to one seven thousandth of an avoirdupois pound? The winners of last week's crossword. Thank you to everyone who took part in our new weekly crossword, published in the weekend edition of The World in Brief. The winners chosen at random from each continent were Asia, Chanakaya, Aurora, New Delhi, India. North America. Evan McLean, Seattle, USA. Central and South America. Sebastian Agudelo Restrepo, Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. Europe. Sriram Chari, Bath, UK. Africa. 
Hasit Raja, Nairobi, Kenya. Oceana, Rob Hugal, Brisbane, Australia. They all gave the correct answers of Burkina Faso, Baltic, Nukes, and Oracle. Check back tomorrow for this week's crossword. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Groucho Marx, who died on this day in 1977. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can never live long enough to make them all yourself. That's the world in brief from The Economist, available three times every day of the week. You can also hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, on your podcast app. And subscribers to The Economist have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app to start listening.